This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. The numbers are one thing, but actually looking at it and feeling how dense the material is or isn't in each one of those screens. And one of the other ways to test it is to look at that pan. If that pan is nice and bright, it's flour, things are good. If that pan is dark, like we had at one point, you probably have a lot of husk damage somewhere. That dark colored is the dust coming off of the husk and it's not gonna convert. It's just gonna plug up your your lauder ton uh, trying to run off your brew. This week on the show, a real-life case study from America's oldest brewery. Hi, my name is Kevin Sibbett. I'm with DJ Yingling & Son Incorporated in Pottsville, PA. I've been with Yingling for 30 years. Started in 1988, throwing kegs around and sorting bottles to becoming now the lead brewer for our Mill Creek facility, running the day-to-day operations of the brewing department. This all came about because you upgraded your lauder ton in 2016. Tell us about that project. What were you working with previously, and what did the upgrade look like? So we have a 26-foot lauder ton that's used. Most of this Mill Creek facility went together with used equipment. The only new vessel in the brew house was the kettle at the time. So we kind of had the cards that we were dealt with to make do with what we had with this used equipment, get everything up and running, and get beer into the markets as as quickly as we could. And we did a very good job. Um, The planning of this facility was very well thought out as far as from groundbreaking until production time. We, We did very well with that. But after we got up and running for a couple of years, we needed to get back into the efficiencies and start looking at the dollars and cents and, and making sure that we're doing as much as we could efficiently as we could and save as much money as we could in the process of the production of all the beer we were doing. So this upgrade needed to be done because the lotter ton was kind of beat up as far as the floor goes. Um, it was warped, had a lot of gaps in it. Um, the gearbox was old. Uh, the arms, it was a three-arm system, and the rakes actually turned 
to the plow position versus having plow bars like you have today uh, in a newer vessel. So we knew we needed to do this and put a new floor in. We had another lauder ton, the sister lauder ton to this one, sitting down in Tampa at our other facility. So we had all the plates shipped up, modified them a little bit to reinforce them because we were making some big brews. We were making 650 barrel brews in this 26 foot lauder ton. And we knew that we were kind of you know pushing the limits with it for, for many years and, and we did what we could, but it was time to upgrade it and start getting more efficiencies out of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, I think there's a, there's a lot of other brewers in that same position sort of overloading their water ton. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you already said the batch size, but give us a, a bit more information in terms of what the runoff time looked like, you know, what the raking process looked like and just, just how much you were overloading it. Sure. We were doing 650 barrel brews, which meant we were somewhere around um, 352 kilograms per meter squared in that lauder ton. And it, industry standards or the book says, you know, one of those things, somewhere around 200 kilograms per meter squared is where you want to be. So we were, we were way over. We knew that. But along with that, um, it had an adverse effect on what we can do with our milling um, as far as our raw materials and making sure that we can get the most bang for our book out of our raw materials. So three-hour runoffs, a bunch of deep bed rakes. Sometimes it, it was just tough. It, we were trying to schedule brews, and we're doing brews every five and a half to six hours. And by doing this upgrade that we did and looking at the milling and looking at the process, which every brewer should be doing in their own brewery, we learned a lot. And that's kind of why I put this program together, just to get people to open up their eyes and, and take a look at their own process and, and become the expert instead of somebody from the outside coming in, you should do this or you should do that. Become the expert and know your own equipment to the point where you're very well versed on every part of the process from the raw materials coming in until until the beer's going into a package. I, I've got a, a lot of questions I want to ask you about the upgrade, but first I want to talk about something you just said. You just mentioned deep bed cuts, and I want to talk about that for a minute because there are a lot of craft brewers running raking units that aren't really good for anything but plowing out the spent grain. And and I've shown the Kunza's uh, laudering diagram to folks in the past who proceeded to look at me like I was from another planet. So let's talk a little bit just about the basic operations of a raking unit and, and, and how that works on a system like this. So for us, the, the raking is very important, especially with uh, a lauder ton that had that much material in it to make sure that we're cutting the bed properly, making sure that we can get uh, the sparge water down through and, and not plug the floor up. It was a challenge for us to control the speed of the arms and the height of the rakes to make sure that we could do what we needed to to get the runoff uh, in a shorter time and get the clarity of the work that we needed to see. Talk about how that raking unit does. Um, I assume, is, is it spinning continuously throughout the entire water cycle or not? Yeah, we have the rakes moving the whole time. And what we found by doing this upgrade um, was we were able to slow the rakes down considerably. So we may have, at the time with the old system, been going about one RPM. So one arm, three arms, three minutes total time all the way around for one arm to go through. Today, we're doing 0.07. RPMs, which is huge in far as far as gaining the clarity in the wart. Yeah, a lot of those those very large systems, that raking unit, it moves so slow you can barely see watch it move almost. You know, so you said that's roughly what about did you say about four minutes or so for a revolution or something like that. 
Yeah, that's well over four minutes yeah. now with the new yeah. system. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, um, and, and so, and a lot of people. I just want to talk more about that diagram because a lot of people don't, you know, not having operated units that have the height control. If you've got access to the Kunza Technology and Malting and Brewing book, flip it open and look at that laudering diagram. But it basically shows that raking unit starts off up at a higher position and it shows the extract you know come down throughout the course of water and it shows the um the turbidity start off a little a little high and come down it shows the pressure differential uh increase throughout the process and basically that raking unit it's turning the whole time and it's stepping down as that dp is increasing it's it's making deeper and deeper cuts uh to try to offset that dp and if you look at the example in the textbook then it shows where it finally it cuts too deep on uh, the turbidity spikes and then they bring it and, and and the dp drops way down but they they bring the unit back up and that becomes sort of the um you know don't go beyond this point mark i i don't know you know how much logic you have built into your system but some of these systems are very intelligent and and you know there's a lot of automation in them yeah, ours is very automated. We'll start out with about six inches of height with the rakes, so six inches from the floor. And as differential pressure starts to creep up, we'll drop down a half an inch, and then we'll drop down another half an inch. And then as it climbs up even further, and we get maybe to uh, 20 as a differential, we might start to also slow down the runoff going into the kettle to try and just hold this back and get a little bit more time out of it until finally we get to about 30 inches differential and we will stop the runoff, drop the rakes down to, to zero, cut the bed for three minutes, and then we'll start the process all over again. And this, this is just set up to be automated throughout the runoff. Well, let's get into um, into more about this project. Uh, why don't you talk? I know we want to talk a lot about milling. Talk about what milling looked like before your upgrade. Our our milling spec at the time that we had was very loose, and it had to be because we were overloading a lot of time. Um, so we had some settings that were definitely not ideal for us. Definitely not ideal for uh, a, a six set roller mill. We have a, a Schmidt Seeger uh, mill with three sets of rollers in it so our top was a 0.065 so 65 thousandths of an inch pretty typical as far as that size but then the middle and the bottom couldn't be kept as tight as we wanted to just because we were going to tighten up that bed so tight that we weren't going to be able to run off so they weren't optimal but we made it work until we did the upgrade which which was a big change for us to be able to tighten up that mill and squeeze more out of our malt and what were those numbers we were at 65 thousandths on the top, 55 on the center, and 45 thousandths on the bottom. And I'll just do the quick math there for anybody who's used to the metric systems. That'd be <laughs> 1.65, 1. 1.4, and 1.14. Okay, so you got your, you know, you get this new system in there. Um, you get your new lauder ton up and running. And what do, you, what do you, what does anybody do with the shiny new lauder ton? Well, of course you're going to crank down the down those mill gaps and put the pedal to the metal, right? Yeah, we tried to squeeze some more efficiency out of what we were doing, but then we learned with the floor being as tight as it was, as, as fresh as it was, that uh, there's no way we can do this again. So we we designed our brews to be 500-barrel brews, which allowed us to reduce the loading, which also allowed us to tighten up all the mill settings and, and get more out of our, our malt in the process. 
All right. Well, let's talk about sort of that um, that iterative process. So, you know, um, after after that, those first couple of brews where you tried to push it and, and things probably didn't go as great as everyone had hoped. Um, what did you do then? What, how did you go? How did you start to troubleshoot that process and, and make iterative improvements? Well, the first thing we were doing was the sieve analysis and seeing what we were getting coming into the into the mill itself, and and that kind of was an eye opener there. So that that's where we really started to um, change things around by seeing what we were bringing into the mill. The malt was beat up at that point, and we needed to find out why. Why was the malt in the condition it was before we got to grind it, uh, before we could ever get it through the process to the lauder ton? So we, we spent a lot of time on the sieve analysis itself. How often were you doing sieve analysis prior to this upgrade? Were you doing that on regular intervals or like just when you changed your malt or what? No, we do them regularly here at Mill Creek. Okay. And do you, do you just use the ASBC malt 15 method or do you do something different? Pretty typical setup with the sieve analysis, starting with a number 10 screen, uh, going down to a 100 screen plus the pan. Uh, we usually do at least one a week, if not more, depending upon different style brews that we're making that week or, or maybe a change in the mold itself. Do you typically pull those samples from the mill sample port or do you get them from the grist case or somewhere else or what? So they're coming from um, the common tube on the mill so we're not doing individual ones for each roller we're doing the, the combined sample coming out of the mill okay. and then shaking it out through the screens coming up keep the porosity of the bed in the lauder ton in the condition we wanted to to be sure to run off um, in a timely manner and still get the ideal laudering efficiency that we wanted to I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis meets at Anheuser-Busch January 17th. Is PCR right for your brewery QC program? Check out the Master Brewers webinar January 24th. The District Ontario Annual Conference is January 31st and February 1st. District St. Louis meets February 21st at Third Wheel Brewing. And the 2019 California Joint Technical Conference is February 28th and March 1st in Paso Robles. It's not too early to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing it up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Will there be a costume party? Only Tressa knows. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
now back to the show. You mentioned earlier, you kind of identified that the, the malt was essentially beat up, I guess, before it even got to the mill, right? Yeah, and that really opened our eyes to to digging into our system. Uh, we do pneumatic unloading here at Mill Creek as opposed to gravity in a lot of other places or super sacks or a lot of 50-pound bags. We unload typically about 175 rail cars a year. So it's all pneumatic for us here at Mill Creeks. We ne- really needed to dive in. From the car itself all the way through till it got to the mill and examined every piece of pipe, every hose, every elbow, um, every diverter valve, for instance. Everything had to get looked at and identified if there was some type of a problem. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the stuff you found and some of the changes that you made. I, I thought one thing was interesting. You mentioned that you replaced uh, um, smart elbows with sacrificial elbows. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Talk about that a little bit. So, smart elbows are uh, an engineered elbow to try and cushion the malt so it doesn't get beat up going from one direction to another and they have a little pocket inside Um, there's a couple different manufacturers but uh, we installed a whole lot of these to try and get rid of pipes that were being worn out Uh, you get any type of wear in in an elbow and it starts to cut uh, the tiniest hole will start to cut an awful lot of malt so the idea here was to try and go with the smart valves to or the smart elbows to make the turn and make it as gentle on the mold as possible but we wound up finding out that due to the amount we had in there it really wasn't benefiting us we we really went back to just the the old black iron sacrificial elbows and and decided to just pay more attention to them schedule the inspections on them and, and just really start paying attention to that part of the process one of the other things we do is we use four inch stainless uh, I, I call them slinky hose for lack of a better term third directional hose and if you would turn that hose the wrong way i guarantee you you would beat up the malt and the easiest way to tell the difference is to gently glide your hand on the inside of the hose if it's smooth pushing your hand or your fingers in that's the direction of the flow if you start to put your hand in the hose and it's real rough well then now you're going against what the slinky wrap or the style of the hose is so you could damage malt real quick if just that hose is on backwards Makes sense. It, it sounds like you had uh, a lot of variables during unloading, like different types of trailers um, and whatnot. What did you learn there? We don't typically get a lot of trailers here, but from time to time we do. So one of the things we did was try and pay attention to that part. Uh, a dump style trailer uh, that would just by gravity flow to the back of the trailer and we would pneumatically unload off of that works very well for us here uh, as far as being gentle to the malt. A lot of people get the bulkmatic style or the hopper style trailers, and those style trailers, depending upon how they're loaded, there could be damage done to that malt before you get the, before you receive the malt. And if you open up the top the, of the car, the malt might look real good because the transportation of that malt has shaken a lot of the fines or the dust to the bottom. You're really you're not going to see that if you're taking a sample out of the top of it. Some of those cars are pneumatically loaded from a rail car, for instance. So you're transferring the malt an extra time before you get it to your facility. And in our case, we're offloading it pneumatically from that style hopper trailer as well. What uh, general conclusions did you make from that in- investigation? I mean, were there any sort of like you know major red flags or ahas, or was it sort of death by a thousand cuts? 
I, I think it was just a matter of spending a lot of time going through the system and identifying each particular part. Um, we sampled rail cars top and bottom. We sampled the malt before it hits the mill. We sampled the malt if we could dropping into a silo just to figure out um, and identify different parts of the system that may be causing the damage. And like I said, we replaced a lot of the smart elbows that we thought were going to help us at this point in time. And, and they may work very well in someone else's system. But again, identifying our own system, we needed to go back to real long, large wide sweeps to be a little bit more gentle with the product. Let's attempt to dis- demystify mill gaps a bit. You put up a really nice slide during the District Philly meeting, which I'll link to from the show notes that shows typical ranges for mill gaps for two, four, and six roll mills. But even with guidelines, like a lot of things in brewing, there's a lot that depends on your situation. Talk about that. The difficulty with trying to put this program together was to try and include everybody from the smaller breweries to the larger regionals or or even bigger um, to get an idea of what they can and can't do with their malt. If you only have a two-roller mill system and you're trying to shake out a whole sieve from a number 10 screen down to a 100, it's kind of difficult. You're very limited on what you can do with your your settings. And and as you get up into the six-roller mill, you could really start to tweak and tighten up and get down to what you need as far as what your process will allow. So even though these are ideal settings that are in the slide, the idea here is it's a guide. It it does it's not it's not etched in stone. Um, If you vary from it, you probably need to vary from it for a good reason. And that's something we found. We don't exactly have the same settings as what's in this chart because what we do is we go through with the sieve analysis and we dump it into an Excel spreadsheet that our Tampa plan had created. And we can graph what what we have in our sample compared to what an ideal uh, sample should look like. And you can see where you might be close at some point but farther away in another, and like, then you start asking yourself, well, do I need to be that far away, or can I tighten this up without having any type of adverse effect on my process? So the, the slide is a very good guide, but again, it's, it's just a guide. What do your mill gaps look like now that you've got everything dialed in? The previous setup was 65 thousandths for the top gap, 55 thousandths for the middle, and the bottom was at 45 thousandths. The current setup today with a 500 barrel brew, as opposed to the 650 barrel brew that we were making prior to these changes, we went to 65 thousandths. The kind of stays the same because you still want to get just that husk in that first screen uh, as much as possible. The, the biggest changes were the middle and the bottom. We went to 30 thousandths in the middle from 55 thousandths. The bottom we've taken down to 25 thousandths from 45 thousandths. So we're really getting a better grind out of our mill. And the sieve analysis itself, instead of just looking at the pans, we lay it out on a table. We lay it out and here's the 10, here's the 14, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to the pan. And we lay it out and we look at it. The numbers are one thing, but actually looking at it and feeling how dense the material is or isn't 
in each one of those screens. And one of the other ways to test it is to look at that pan. If that pan is nice and bright, it's flower, things are good. If that pan is dark, like we had at one point, you probably have a lot of husk damage somewhere. That dark colored is the dust coming off of the husk, and it's not going to convert. It's just going to plug up your, your lotter ton uh, trying to run off your brew. You also do a husk density test, which is new to me. What does that do for you? So this is something that our Tampa plant was doing for quite some time. And we got together once we started doing this project and going through it and just trying to identify some more ways to make sure that we're going to keep the porosity of the bed in the lotter ton in the condition we wanted to to be sure to run off um, in a timely manner and still get the ideal lottering efficiency that we wanted to. So what we're trying to do with the husk density test is to take a 100 gram sample based on the percentage of the number 10 and the number 14 screen and put them together in their percentage of each, come up with as high as possible husk density in a graduated cylinder. So we're trying to shoot for at least 500 milliliter or more in a graduated cylinder uh, to, to really have a, a good idea of being able to set that bed. It's, it's a filter. It, it's no different than if you're using diatomaceous earth in a screen filter. For instance, you're setting up that uh, pre-coat. You're setting up that um, bed so that you're going to optimize the runoff and not plug it. It's really the same thing with a lotter ton. So we were trying to make sure that we're getting as much as we can of each component of our grind, which includes the husk, to try and give it um, the channeling that it needs for the bed. Any additional takeaways you want to talk about in regards to sieve analysis or, or any of the other tests that you were working on? I would say spend a lot of time with it and sample, sample, sample. The more you sample, the more you're going to learn. You're going to see some trends. and Compare it to what your certificate of analysis is coming from your maltster and see where you are along with things. Sometimes if you see a change maybe in the diastatic power or the coarse grind extract, uh, you can make some adjustments to your recipe as well through the grind or just raw material alone for that instance. If the CGAI is changing on what you have, you might be able to reduce the amount of malt you have to use and still achieve the same the same end product in, at the end of the runoff for the brew. So um, there's a lot of factors, but it, it's just a matter of digging down into it and repeating it over and over and over. You're now producing substantially more barrels of wort every day from significantly less material. Give us the details. We went from a 650-barrel brew down to a 500-barrel brew, which took our loading from 352 kilograms per meter squared down to 271 kilograms per meter squared, which still isn't what the book says, but uh, it's, a it's, a very, <laughs> it's a very good start. And, and who knows, you know, maybe, maybe based on what we're trying to do here or whatever somebody's trying to do in their brewery, you may not be able to achieve that 200 uh, kilograms per meter squared and still achieve the same size recipe that you want to do. The biggest thing we saw was with the runoffs. We went from a, over a three and a half hour or three plus hour runoff down to a two hour runoff, which is huge. To, to be able to drop off a whole hour or more of the runoff and get rid of the deep cuts. Part of what we did was also the speed of the arms going through the bed. We were actually going at one RPM, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when we slowed it down, we slowed it down to 0.07 
RPM, which is huge. Um, it really kept the bed intact. It kept the clarity up. The wart clarity really came up by doing that. So we cut down a lot of the turbulence in the bed. And we went from possibly only making four brews a day at about 2,600 barrels uh, as a rough number to six brews a day, slightly s smaller brew, quicker runoff, turn a lot of ton around quicker to, to making 3,000 barrels a day. And the biggest thing is we gained on our lottering efficiency and our overall BME in the brew house. The BME and the lottering efficiency itself really came up. The, B, the total BME coming out of the, each one of the brews were in the high 90s, which, which is uh, amazing to see uh, compared to where we may have been prior to this. We were, we were a lot lower than that because of overloading the lotter ton and not being able to get the grind as fine as we could. But the biggest thing uh, to take away from doing this is, is the money we're saving. We're, we're really getting the most bang for our buck out of materials we're, we're bringing into the brew house now being able to reduce the loading in the lauder ton get the amount of materials to stay above the floor and not get through the floor uh, it was huge all the way through the process that was kevin sibbett here on the master brewers podcast check the show notes for a link to the presentation kevin gave at district philly the gist of this program for everybody when we did the slide presentation at Philadelphia was just to get people to open up their eyes, audit your system, take a look at whatever you have, whether you're bringing malt in in rail cars or you're bringing malt in in 50-pound bags. How are you transporting that malt to your brew house? Ask a lot of questions from your malt companies, the vendors, everybody involved in this process. Become the expert of your own system. Learn as much as you can about it. The sieve analysis is nice to look at the numbers, but the biggest thing that we've done with the sieve analysis, and I like to share with people, is lay it out on the table. Take each screen, lay it out, taste it. Feel it, touch it, taste it. If that pan is not bright, if it's dark, you put your finger on it, wet your finger and put it on it, it's going to taste slightly bitter. It's not going to dissolve off of your tongue. If the pan's nice and bright because of it being flour, again, wet your finger, taste it, it should dissolve and be sweet. Right off the bat, you know that there's a problem that you're getting some type of husk damage to your malt in the process. Next thing I would do is make sure you document everything. We document heavily here. We have a lot of data on what we do at our mill analysis and samples. And keep going over it. Go back through the data, go back through the process itself, review it constantly, and share that information uh, like we're doing today. Uh, getting that information out there and giving everybody uh, an idea of what somebody else is doing might help them in their own process and, and be able to get more efficiencies out of what they're doing with their milling and their brewing as well. Too fast, and then